we continue our Lenten series every Wednesday until Easter with readings from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and from Exodus chapter 20. Hear the word of our Lord from 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in the first verse. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Our Old Testament reading for this evening and every Wednesday evening during this season of Lent is from Exodus, the 20th chapter, beginning in the first verse. Hear the word of our Lord. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who keep me, who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. 
You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We've covered these past three weeks now. That 1 Corinthians 15, those first 10 or 11 verses, form the proto-creed of the church. If you translate it into the Greek from English, or if you look at a Greek manuscript of 1 Corinthians 15, it's clunky Greek. It doesn't make too, too much sense. The grammar is a little stiff and wooden. But if it's translated into Aramaic, it looks like a poem. It looks like something that has the same mnemonic devices and the same structure, almost like a psalm. It is intended to be memorized. So, before there was the Apostles' Creed, we might call this the Jerusalem Creed, something that came out of the church in Jerusalem, maybe with collaboration between all 12 apostles or St. James and St. Peter themselves working on it. It was something for people to understand and hold on to before they could get a copy of the Gospel of St. Matthew, before they could get Scripture on their hands to really dig into God's Word. And what's the first thing this creed says? That our Lord Jesus Christ died for our sins. That's it. That's how it starts. Before a Christian knows anything else, he must know that Christ died for his sins. In fact, for all sins, and all of the scriptures attest to this. If a new Christian knew nothing else about the Bible, they would know that it attests to Christ's crucifixion and then to his resurrection. But with that, we have to ask, for what did our Lord Christ die? It is not enough to just say that he died for our sins. We don't fully understand that meaning until we understand what the law tells us our sins are. So we started on Ash Wednesday speaking of the first two in the Ten Commandments. God's morality given to us. That is all Ten Commandments. If you ask what God's will is for your life, look at and study and re-study and re-read and study again all Ten of these Commandments. He says, first off, you shall have no other gods before me. We explored how idolatry is written into the human heart. But then it says, you shall not take God's name in vain. A name which we take in vain every single time we sin, every single time we say an errant word about our God that presents his doctrine falsely. After all, if a prophet was declared a false prophet when they said, Thus saith the Lord, when God had not spoken, so too, then, is everybody a kind of false prophet when they teach from error. But then last week we spoke about the Sabbath day, 
remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. We had to crack open our copy of Luther's large catechism for that one to understand that it is no longer a Sabbath day, a single Sabbath day out of every week that we take, but our entire life is a Sabbath devoted to hearing God's word and keeping everything we do in subjection to him and devotion to him. That's why St. Paul writes in Colossians, whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord. So it is no longer work, but instead being part of the Sabbath that we now live in. Christ is our Sabbath. But we reject that whenever we live in any sort of self-willed way, whenever we hear God's word and are not paying deep attention to it, whenever we disregard God, we show great contempt for him. Christ died for all of these. And now we get to yet another controversial commandment, don't we? Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. That is our fourth commandment. Now, this is a commandment where we are willing to argue with it verbally. And sometimes, if we're the type that stays quiet in church, we argue with it silently. The first three commandments, we say, yes, sir. I want to do that thing, and I don't want to violate that commandment. Uh, but we understand, due to our nature, that we are always going to struggle with our own idolatry. We are always going to struggle with taking God's name in vain. And we understand to our shame that we do not devote our lives to God as we ought. But when it comes to this fourth commandment, people get more bold. In fact, I would wager that with each successive commandment, people get louder. Only with this fourth commandment, we get far more passionate. What does it mean to honor your father and your mother? Well, they are your first neighbors. If you are to love your neighbor as yourself, these are the two neighbors whom you should be loving far more than other people, with a single exception. That is, if you are a man who has a wife, you are required to love and honor that wife more than you honor your father and your mother. But we understand that love for the Bible is in concentric circles of priority. The neighbor that is closer to me is loved more than the neighbor who is 7,000 miles away in a country whose name I cannot pronounce. We are to love our parents first and foremost. Because God has placed our parents in a position of authority over us. They do God's job in God's stead, as the catechisms explain. God himself, knowing full well that the moment he pronounced these Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai to all the children of Israel, what was their response? You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. And so the office of prophecy was born. God always likes to speak to us through a mediator, typically through your pastor. At least that's the most identifiable one, right? But throughout our young years, our formative years, 
even our pubescent years, our teen years, our young adult years, who inhabits the office of prophecy for us specifically? Well, the one who sired us. The father, the high priest of the family, is supposed to be there to guide his children, showing them God's law, being the disciplinarian, but also being the provider. He is a very picture of God to people. And the mother, representing the church, well, she is the one who accepts us for what we are in spite of our perfections. There was every so often, I have to discipline our children, one of them. And when he misbehaves, my wife could be as angry as angry could be at that child. But the moment I say, all right, I'm going to spank him or I'm going to discipline him, my wife immediately gets protective. Because mothers, by the nature of that office and vocation, they do seem to represent the gospel, where in spite of our sinful selves, in spite of our misbehavior, and in spite of all the messes we make, they still love us with a mother's love, a kind of accepting and gracious love that we understand we cannot earn, and it is not conditional. But for people who had a bad parent, for people who had a failure of a parent, this is the hardest commandment to obey, or at least it feels like that. Because immediately, we carve out exceptions for ourselves. We say, oh, my father was a bastard. You're telling me that that man represented God? You're saying that St. Paul, saying the husband represents Christ, the wife represents the church, means he was in a prophetic office over me? The man who came home drunk every night. The man who hit me. The man who abandoned us when I was 12 years old. You're telling me to honor, love, and obey that man. And we tell God, no. Oh, you expect me to love my mother. And this is difficult for so many women. You expect me to love the woman that made these backhanded comments to me my entire life. The woman out there sitting floating on her benzos in her armchair that wouldn't so much as lift a finger for me to make me feel better about my issues, my anxiety and depression, my self-esteem problems, the way I was feeling, the pressures of high school, everything that was going on, this woman who roundly ignored everything that I needed, the moment I wasn't a cute little baby. You're telling me to love, honor, and obey that woman? And so many people respond with, no. The Bible does not. The Bible tells you, simply, forthrightly, and boldly, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. It comes with a promise. Do you want to see long days in the land the Lord your God is giving you? Do you want that promise applying to you? Honor your father and your mother. They have that office. They have that vocation. Does it matter if they were a bad mom or a bad dad? Kind of. It doesn't let you off the hook. It doesn't tell you, oh, I, you don't have to actually do this. You can, you can just hope that they rot. 
Oh, your drug addict father has hit rock bottom. He's on the streets now. Oh, you could just let him die. No, the Bible does not let you do that. You are there for your father. You are there for your mother. You should listen to their lessons. And if they were a bad parent, you should learn from their bad example and not repeat it. But we rebel against that because surely God doesn't understand how bad our parents were, right? Jesus died for that rebellion. God put your parents there in your life as prophets for you, as people that typologically represent Christ and his church if they were married. And if they were not married, they still had that role in your life. God was ruling over you through them. They were doing his work in his stead, no matter how poor they were in their performance as parents. But we all like to say, they failed me a few times because they were sinners, so I don't really have to pay attention to this. It becomes worse when we expand this commandment, doesn't it? We have uncles. We have aunts. We have grandparents. We have great-grandparents, all of whom count in this commandment. They are part of this whole thing. And do you have to honor them as much as your individual father and mother? No. But you are to honor them as people who struggled to produce you. Your father is required to honor his father and his mother, so you must honor him by emulating that and honoring your grandfather and your grandmother. Do you always speak well of your parents? Do you always speak well of that uncle? Or do you call him the drunk uncle? Do you make fun of him? If your father had problems with substance abuse or if he was abusive, did you mock him to his face or to your friend's face? Did you curse him under your breath? Oh, this is a sin that I know I've committed. There were days in which I cursed my own mother. And God have mercy on me for it. In spite of my sin. But we all do this. We all think we know better than our parents as we're growing up, don't we? And... Sure enough, sometimes that's the case. But there's the problem of this getting expanded again. And we, we feel that sting again. Because this applies to everybody that God has put in your life to represent his authority. How many of us have said all cops are bastards lately? How many of us have looked at our teachers or our professors, and instead of dutifully listening to them, in spite of our disagreements with them, how many of us have looked at them and went, this guy is an idiot. This man is a fool. This man is evil. And we look with ingratitude, knowing that maybe God did put these people in our lives to teach us. Maybe God put these people in our lives to help us and to do God's job in his stead. But I will not respect them because I know better than them. And I like my program and my way of living better. People disagree with this commandment. They argue against it. Christ died for that arguing, by the way. Because our society is breaking down on account of people not listening to that fourth commandment. Deciding that they could 
disobey it. Now I know the exceptions come out. Well, do I honor my parent if he was always taking money and it takes food out of my children's mouth? What if my government tells me to do something that I know is bad for me? What if my government commands me to sin? And we all have the list of exceptions. We all understand God's word has to take precedence. If your mother tells you stop going to church, you are supposed to keep going to church while still finding a way to honor your mother. If your government tells you to do something that violates any of the commandments, a recent example being the commandments to effectively harm yourself. I think we all know what I'm talking about here. This is going to go on SoundCloud. But we all know what, what I'm talking about. You're commanded to love your neighbor as yourself, and the government was telling people to uh, hate their neighbors and destroy themselves. Of course, there's civil disobedience for these things, but does that let you get away with speeding? Does that let you get away with owning things you're not supposed to own? Does that let the libertarian get away with getting whatever drug he wants to try out and claiming it's because of freedom, man? Oh no, at that point, clearly we all become very, very astute political theorists and we decide that that's, you know, that's separate from what this Bible says. If I don't like what the government says, uh, I just don't have to do it. And I'm going to live my way. In fact, that theme, I'm going to live my way is quite pervasive when it comes to disobeying this commandment. We look for any excuse in the book to say we are going to live our way instead of God's way. We look for any excuse in the book to say, my father told me not to do this, but I am going to do it. Uh, after all, he was such a bad father, you see, and you know, I have these needs and everything, and he doesn't understand what it's like to be somebody in my generation, so I'm going to do what my father told me not to do. Oh, the government, they're just a gang of thieves. Uh, the government, they're just a, a violent group of people that bombs countries whenever they feel like it. So, you know, when I decide to do a little bit of tax fraud here, I mean, they're not going to miss it. And besides, it would go to stuff that is anti-biblical anyway, paying my taxes. So I'm just, I'm not going to do that. Sorry. We make all sorts of excuses. And it's always conveniently what our old Adam wants us to do. Every time we disobey it, it seems to always amount to, I want to sin. And you know, it wasn't from the Bible that these people, my parents, my teachers, the authorities over me, that they told me not to do something that was bad for me. It wasn't straight from the Bible, so <laughs> I get to sin willy-nilly. And you know what that makes us? That makes us the kind of parents whose children will struggle just as much to honor us as we struggle to honor our fathers and our mothers. I can imagine the pain of a parent whose child is incredibly rebellious. I mean, I would know because I inflicted it on my parents. I was an idiot when I was a teenager. But I can imagine the kind of pain that that inflicts on them. I better repent. God visits the sins of the fathers to the children to the third and fourth generations and that means unless I repent 
unless I look at that and clean up my life, that's going to be inflicted on me. My own children are going to break my heart. They're going to break my wife's heart. Potentially destroy our lives. Like I very nearly destroyed one of my parents' lives. Christ died for that. Christ died for the unbroken chain of constant, never-ending, sinful rebellion on our parts. So many people claim they want traditionalist religion. And so many people say we need to return to the old ways that the world seemed to have abandoned a hundred years ago. But Lord knows that if we ever won, if people of our persuasion ever won, well, about half of us would be first in line to say, I don't want that anymore. And I'm, I'm not going to listen to that anymore. I'm going to fight against that. Because we just like the rebellious aspect of it. The world doesn't like what we're doing. They don't like the lives we're living. And we're going to stick it in their eye. And then, well, somebody else is going to be in charge. Maybe they're a devout Christian that wants real Christian morals being shown forth and how the world operates. And we look at that guy and go, how can I stick it in your eye? We're going to do the same exact thing. We're going to have the same exact problems because our sins are going to result in the same exact pain. Because we looked at this commandment and we said no. Christ died for that. He died for every broken home that resulted from somebody not listening to their parents about how to help their marriage out. He died for every single child who decides to run away at 15 with her boyfriend miserably rebelling against her father because for one reason or another, she got a wild hair up her nose and decided that she was going to shame her entire family. Christ died for every time somebody decided to get themselves in a relationship with someone of maybe one persuasion or type or another that their parents said, don't ever marry or even date somebody like that. And Christ died for when we are bad parents ourselves. Oh yes, the commandment to honor your father and your mother includes in it a commandment to be an honorable father and mother. After all, are you honoring your father and mother when you become a parent if you are not a good parent to their grandchildren? Are you obeying God when you're too harsh with your son? Are you glorifying God when they've annoyed you just one too many times today so you scream at them at the top of their lungs and now they're laying on the floor crying and scared? Does that honor God? Of course not. It's evil. And it certainly does not honor your parents whom God put over you. To the contrary, this commandment in Christ having died for it means that Jesus Christ died for every single instance of child abuse that ever happened. For every bruise that we inflicted on our children, Christ died for that. For every time we took things away from them and made them miserable, Christ died for that. For every backhanded comment, for every abandonment of our children that we've ever made, for every disappointment that we have inflicted on them through our own selfish sinfulness, Christ died for that. And in that sense, 
He's died for every parent, for every son, and for every daughter. Because we are all hopelessly addicted to rebellion. After all, that was the first sin in the garden. It was rebellion. When somebody said they knew better than their heavenly father, refused to honor their heavenly father, and devoured a fruit that he said, Do not eat of this because you will die. In a very real sense, the very first sin committed by human beings, by Adam and Eve, was rebellion. And we have been hooked ever since. It was one of the most powerful drugs in history to say, I want to do things my way. I want everything to go my way. And by the way, I am going to punish everybody that doesn't go along with my program. If you can carve out that exception that makes you feel like this commandment does not apply to you, saying you have an abusive parent, saying you have a terrible pastor, saying that you are in a situation where your government is just oh so tyrannical. And indeed, if your teachers and your cops and everybody else that God put in your life to help you if they make a single mistake, God died for that. Our Lord Christ bled for your abusive mother. He went to the cross and they pushed thorns in his head for your abusive, distant father. In the pain that you feel on account of that, that you personally have and will inflict on others, Christ died for that. So that God does not see you, O faithful Christian, as a rebel as a stupid child running away from mommy and daddy. God doesn't see you like that anymore. Instead, he sees you as an obedient child. He sees you as the apple of his eye. He doesn't look at the times you have hurt your parents or hurt your children or rebelled against the ruling authorities. Instead, he looks at you and says, you know, my son was perfectly obedient to me. And I know you have not been. But to me, you are. To me, you are. So I forgive you. And I see you as that obedient child. Let us join hands now and make you that obedient child from here on out. For the rest of this Lenten season, let's meditate on that. Christ died for our idolatry. He died for our vanity and our falsehood, our love of lies. He died for our open contempt of him. And with tonight, we meditate on the fact that he died for our ever-present and destructive rebellion. So that instead, he sees us as faithful. He sees us as honoring his name. He says that we are devoted to him. And he sees us as perfectly obedient and honorable to our parents and for our children. Precisely because Christ our Lord was all of these things on our behalf. 
Now the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord.